Well, good afternoon. For those that may not know me, I'm Tim Shorey, one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to open up God's Word this afternoon. We have been preaching our way through the Gospel of Matthew and have come today to Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. Because of the importance of this text, the relevance of this text, uh, we have decided to turn it into two messages. This week uh, is called Marriage, What God Has Joined Together, and then next week, Marriage, When Things Go Horribly Wrong. What God Has Joined Together and When Things Go Horribly Wrong. I was uh, made aware at the very last minute that uh, there would be younger members of our congregation here for this message, uh, so pray for me as I preach that in those moments where I might have prepared one thing to say in a certain way, uh, I can on the fly say it in a different way uh, that would be appropriate for the entire audience that is here. That said, it is a message that requires serious consideration. It is a topic that is extremely relevant. It is a topic that is of significant concern in our generation. So much so uh, that we're trying to figure out how to give you an opportunity to interact with the topic. And to that end, we're going to try one of our question and answer times at the end of the message. So there will be a text number up there that you can send questions to that Alex will sift through, taking out all the hard ones and then allowing me to answer the easy ones. There are a couple of books on the topic of marriage that we want to recommend. They are in the book nook. Uh, one is called Tying the Knot, a very practical uh, instruction on marriage. And the other is a book by Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage. And so we encourage you to pick those up and devour them and then apply them to your life. Let me pray. Father, would you please come and meet with us and help us in all the unique ways that this moment calls for. Dear Father, please come, carry us, instruct us, guard us, protect us, enlighten us, move us, convict us, change us, inspire us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This past week has been one that has been marked by controversy by ongoing stress within our society when a young black man forgives a white woman who killed his brother we are all struggling to understand the the true nature of forgiveness and accountability even as we have in the not-too-distant past, considered the amazing forgiveness of the family members of the Charleston Nine victims. The other day I posted on Facebook these words, Biblical forgiveness is a simple yet complex thing. When God forgives us our sins, it is immediate and final upon our confession, 1 John 1, 9. But he doesn't forgive us our sins so that we can go on sinning. He forgives us our sins so we can address and deal with that sin and stop sinning like we did before. Forgiveness ends the fear of punishment for a sin, but not the process of eradicating it. When God forgives us, he says, I will remember this against you no more. Hebrews 10. But he also says, go and sin no more. 
When God forgives us, He says, I will accept you and not be bitter or judge you for your sin, which the Bible calls justification, being declared and accepted as righteous by God, even though we are guilty. But then God also says, now let's talk about that sin and let's look at that sin carefully so we can figure out how to help you stop committing it in the future. That is called sanctification in the Bible. It is the process of becoming less sinful and more holy. So when a young black man forgives his brother's white-skinned killer, it is wonderful, but it must not end the conversation. Now we have to talk about all the issues and sins that led up to the killing in the first place and all the other wrongs that go along with it. Forgiveness is a conversation starter, not stopper. Believe it or not, there is an application of all of that to our topic today. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are someone who has had a decisive transition moment or time in your life when you consciously and soberly trusted Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord and surrendered your life to Him, if you are such a person, then all your sins, all of your sins, all of your Sexual sins, sins against your spouse, sins against your marriage, sins that your anger and evil desires and grudges have produced. All of those sins are forgiven the moment you came to true faith in Jesus Christ. That is the glorious gospel of Jesus. But now, God wants to talk to us about those sins. God wants to say to us now, what do we have to learn and what do we have to believe and what do we have to do so that we can go and sin no more? I stand before you today as a man who is under and as a man who answers to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I owe my highest allegiance, I owe everything to King Jesus and to his law. So when we were singing earlier, pour me out, pour me out, all I am is yours, I was thinking, Lord, help me to do that and be that as I preach today because I don't want to preach this message. I don't want to deal with this topic. I don't want to deal with the implications of it. Brothers and sisters, Virtually every phrase and teaching in this text, Matthew 19, is radically and unalterably counter-cultural. Virtually every phrase in this text flies right into the face of popular opinion, 21st century, westernized, secularized, cultural decrees. And I recognize that cultural perspectives around today that are ignoring and redefining and dissolving sexuality and marriage, those perspectives have evolved. Have you noticed this? They have evolved into what many would see not just as an optional alternative to Bible faith, but as a superior moral code over the scriptures. Have you, have you noticed this in our world today? Virtually every word of this text in front of us contradicts the spirit and code of our times. And can I say this, my friends, that if you and I as followers of Christ are going to be faithful to Jesus Christ and stand by his word, And on his word and under his word at every point, if we are going to do that, then we are going to bear the wrath of our generation. We are. We are going to bear the wrath. Listen to this. On Tuesday, a British court ruled 
that belief in the Bible was, quote, incompatible with human dignity, end quote. That statement came in a case involving Dr. David Macareth, a devout Christian who had worked as an emergency doctor for the National Health Service for 26 years. He said he was fired from his job because he refused to call a biological man a woman. The court's ruling stated, and this is a quote, listen carefully, belief in Genesis 1.27, lack of belief in transgenderism and conscientious objection to it in our judgment are incompatible with human dignity and conflict with the fundamental rights of others, specifically here, transgender individuals. The court added, now listen, insofar as those beliefs form part of his wider faith, his wider faith also does not satisfy the requirement of being worthy of respect in a democratic society. Are you hearing what it's saying? Those who take the Bible seriously are not worthy of respect. A well-known politician in the last election cycle at a pro-same-sex pro event said that those who believe that that kind of lifestyle is sin belong in a basket of deplorables. That is how the world views the truth. That is what we're up against. Uh, that's not the right way to say it. As we who love Jesus and love the Bible, as we who love God's Word and love marriage and love purity and love all things beautiful, as we who believe that there is a Creator God who has made us and made all things beautiful and has made marriage not to be an obligatory, ugly, nasty institution, but has made it to be beautiful, has made it to be wonderful because He loves human beings. As we who believe in the beauty of all these things seek to cherish them and love them and delight in them, we need to know that there is a world out there who is actively opposing these very things every single day of its life. This is not being opposed to them. This is being for this. And so cherishing what God has made that we are willing to devote our whole lives to it and defend it and uphold it and celebrate it every chance we get. It's not about being against. It's about being for. For something beautiful for something wonderful, for something glorious. And yet we live in a broken world. What's the phrase Jesus used in Matthew 19? Because of the hardness of your heart. We have hard hearts. We are, we are broken people in a broken world. So it's very important that we take a look at this text and let's see what Jesus, our Lord and our God, see what he says about marriage. There are, there are five truths and I'll cover these as quickly as I can and as simply as I can. There are five truths in this text about marriage. Number one, marriage is God's idea. It is God's idea, not man's or men's. Number two, marriage is defined and designed by God. He wants husbands to leave father and mother, hold fast to the wife, and become one. Number three, marriage is for a man and a woman. Number four, marriage is made to last. And number five, marriage is not for everyone. 
These are the five teachings of this passage. There are more, but these are the five primary teachings. Let me guide you through them now. First of all, marriage is God's idea, not man's idea or men's idea. Marriage is God's idea. Look at Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice it. The verbs, he created them, he made them, he said, therefore a man shall leave father and mother. What does this say? It says marriage is God's idea, not man's idea or men's idea. If it is God's idea, then it is not man's idea. Man in the sense of humankind, mankind, if it is God's idea, then man, then humans have no business ignoring it or trashing it or redefining it. We must stand by his idea. And if it is God's idea and not men's, then it must not be abused by men for their own advantage or agenda. And if it is God's idea and not men's, then women cannot dismiss it as a male-created way of keeping them oppressed and keeping them underfoot, though we must admit that far too many men have misused and abused marriage for that very purpose. But the reality is that marriage is God's idea, not man's and not men's. Is that clear? from the text. Therefore, God has created marriage. He defines marriage. He approves of marriage. He sets the rules and the guidelines and the goals for marriage, and it is not ours to mess with. We need to leave our hands off of what God has created. Number two, marriage is defined and designed. It is defined and designed by God. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, Matthew 19 and verse 5. Therefore a man shall, number one, leave his father and his mother, and two, hold fast to his wife, and three, the two shall become one flesh. Here is, here's God's design, God's blueprint for marriage. There are three parts to it touching on him ever so briefly, a man shall leave his father and mother. That means that for those who are married, the marriage relationship is the primary lifelong relationship of their life. There comes a point for those who are married, for those who get married, where their relationship with father and mother radically changes, and they now have a new priority relationship in their life, and that is their wife or their husband. They leave father and mother. Number two, they hold fast to one another. That's the language of a covenant and a solemn pledge and devotion. That's the language of lifelong. That's the language of do not quit. That's the language of keep on keeping on. Hold fast. Covenant is at the heart of marriage. I've often said, you probably heard me say that in the dozens and dozens of weddings that I have had the joy of, of officiating in The most important part of the wedding ceremony is not me, is not my sermon, is not the songs, is not the candles, is not the rings, is not... The most important part are the vows. The vow makes them husband and wife. The covenant seals it as a hold fast relationship. It seals it as a relationship for life till death do us part. A covenant does not imply perfect compliance, but it does imply enduring commitment. It doesn't suggest perfect love. It does demand persevering love. 
A covenant does not suggest that it will avoid all problems or failures in marriage, but it does promise that except in the most extreme of cases, it will outlast all problems and trials and hardships in a marriage. A a man shall leave his father and mother, shall hold fast, shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They will enter into a physical, spiritual, complementary union. They will become one flesh. And this becoming one has at least three purposes for it. It is for the purpose of parenting. Since normally in becoming one, babies are made. And that's part of Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We become one so that children can be born. Because God loves kids. He loves children. We're going to see Jesus in Matthew chapter 20 in the middle of His crazy, busy ministry on the way to the cross where He's dying for our sins. He stops and He takes little children in His lap and He prays over them and blesses them because Jesus loves kids. And He wants us to have children and to cherish them. Becoming one is for the purpose of parenting becoming one is for the purpose of pleasure and love since becoming one is intended to please and to be enjoyed by a thankful heart between one man and one woman in a devoted covenanted relationship for life and this becoming one is for the sake of parenting for the sake of love and for the sake of partnership Because the very first reason that God gave for giving Adam a wife was what? It is not good for him to be alone. I will make him what? A helper suited to him. Notice, he didn't say I will make him a companion or a friend or a lover or... Now, I will make him a helper suited to him. See, God in chapter 1 of Genesis had given Adam a huge task. He said, I want you to have dominion over the earth. And in chapter 2, God said, now Adam, here's the Garden of Eden. Go it, take care of it, tend it. Turns Adam loose and Adam's walking around like this. God, God said, he needs help. He needs help. I will make him a helper suited to him. We need to understand this. Being a helper for the man does not imply inferiority in the woman. It implies inadequacy in the man. You hear that? There's no superiority, inferiority here. It's just we men need help. By the way, you women do too. We all need help. We all need help. And God has given us kingdom work. I want you to build my kingdom. I want you to have dominion over all the earth. God has given us kingdom and gospel work. And He intends for our marriages to be such that our gifts complement each other. We become one in flesh, one in heart, one in mission, so that together we can accomplish more than what we could accomplish alone. This one fleshness is about parenting. It's about pleasure in love. It is about partnership in parenting, in physical, relational, and missional unity. Marriage, marriage is defined and designed by God. Number three, marriage is for a man and a woman. It is for a man and a woman. Once again, look at verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 
He made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God created and God defines gender. We don't. We can't. If I were to try to give a simple, clear, unambiguous definition of marriage, faithful to the clear teaching of God's Word, I think this would be it. Marriage is a God-ordained, covenanted union between one man and one woman for life. Marriage is a God-ordained, covenanted union between One man, male, and one woman, female, for life. By definition, this excludes all other types of marriages and unions that the world is trying to establish. This excludes those. This doesn't mean that those who choose a different form of marriage, quote-unquote, those who yield to attraction to one another, to men, to women, or the like. It doesn't mean that they're in a separate category of sinnerhood than the rest of us are. It doesn't mean that if someone chooses that kind of attraction or life, that they are worse than anyone else. It doesn't mean that those making that choice should be hated or mocked or singled out for social or civil or Christian attack. Nor does it mean that those who are attracted or that kind of attraction should be made illegal. We believe in the legal freedom of people to believe or not believe, to behave or not behave as they choose, so long as they do not attack or harm others in the process. Did you you know it's possible to have a legal right to do something that is morally wrong? And that we actually ought to uphold people's legal rights to do moral wrongs. It is a moral wrong to tell a lie. Would you agree? Would you like to make it a law? As soon as you make it a legal issue, every one of us goes to jail. It is, it is a moral wrong to commit adultery does not mean it needs to be a legal wrong to commit adultery. It is possible to have laws that give people the right to do something wrong on earth. Everyone who does what is wrong will one day face a lawgiver who stands above all human laws. And will call every human being to account for every wrong that they have done. We believe in individual freedom. And would go so far as to defend the legal rights of others to pursue happiness. But we need to understand that there is such a thing as sexual sin. There is moral wrong that can be done in bed or in the back seat of a car, or in front of a bluish-tinted screen. You may have a legal right to indulge, but you will stand before God to give an account for. What we mean is not that those who give in to this type of sin are worse than anyone else. It is simply that those who yield to that kind of attraction are in fact guilty of sin, just like those who yield to the attraction of adultery. Just like those who yield to the attraction of premarital sex. Just like those who yield to the attraction of pornography or body and swimsuit editions in sports magazines. Just like those who yield to the attraction of an illicit scene on the Game of Thrones. They are all sin. They are all wrong. They all must be resisted. They all must be repented of. 
They all must be atoned for through the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to the word of God. God tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. That as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his or her own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother or his sister in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives us his, or gives His Spirit to you. I don't know that there is a text of Scripture that speaks a more sobering word to our generation than this one. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God who gives His Holy Spirit to us. Brothers, we ask. Sisters, we urge you in the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God. This is the will of God. Even your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality of all kinds of all categories. For even Jesus has taught us in Matthew 5 that if we even look on a woman with craving desire, we have already committed adultery in our hearts. God's will for us is chastity and abstinence before marriage, and then fidelity after marriage, in and after and throughout marriage. This is the will of God for us. Marriage is for a man and a woman who have covenanted their devotion and love before God for life. Number four, Marriage is made to last. Marriage is made to last. Verse 6. So they, the husband and wife, are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage as an institution is God's idea. And marriages, individual marriages, are God's creations. He has joined them and what God has joined together, let not man separate. I know this can be hard to receive. But God has His reasons. God has His reasons in our marriages. Even in those that are unhappy. We will see next week that there are extreme circumstances that God has established because of the hardness of human hearts, the sins that can happen in a marriage, there are extreme circumstances that God says, that Jesus says, are exemptions and exceptions to the rule about divorce. But those are extreme circumstances. The posture of every believer in his or her marriage should be, I am going to make this work. I am going to outlast the hardships till death do us part. I know. I think about now Alex's text thing is exploding with all the questions related 
to what I just said. We will talk next week about the exceptions when things go horribly wrong. Before you can talk about the exceptions, you have to talk about the rule. Before you can talk about those things that are the unusual or at least the extreme, we need to talk about those things that are the norm and the absolute. Marriage is meant to last. And then finally, ever so quickly, marriage is not for everyone. Marriage is not for everyone. Matthew 19, verses 10 through 12. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. A eunuch is an old time word for someone who was single and living a celibate life. It's an interesting, unexpected turn in this conversation that King Jesus has with his first followers. First thing to notice is that the disciples get the message. God's standard for marriage and divorce is so strict and so serious that remaining single would seem to be the better option. If such is the case, they ask, of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Notice Jesus doesn't contradict them and say, no, you're getting me all wrong. What does he say? Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. In other words, to his disciples he's saying, yeah, in one sense you're right. It's better not to get married because it's so strict and it's so serious and it's so binding. But not everyone can handle that. And then he proceeds to say that there are these various eunuchs, some so from birth, some who've been made eunuchs by others, those who have made themselves single and celibate so that they can, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, live a life of devotion and commitment. Marriage is not for everyone, Jesus is saying, that there are those who are called to singleness. And in fact, if you stop to think about it, at least half of us will spend some time single in our lifetime. Singleness is a calling that we will have at some point. And Jesus is saying when that happens there are certain ways in which that person can now serve the kingdom of heaven in ways that they may not be able to otherwise. We don't have time, but you can read 1 Corinthians 7 to see more about this, where Paul says, basically in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, look, the goal for everyone is to be completely devoted to Christ. Now, because of the temptation to sin, some of you need to get married so that you're not distracted by the temptation to immorality. But the problem with getting married is it creates all kinds of other distractions, all kinds of other issues, and some of you are going to get distracted by marriage. The key is be wholeheartedly committed to Jesus Christ. And then figure out with God's help and counsel and all the rest what is the best status for you. Now, if you're already married, you're already married. You don't have a choice. But let us not be those who consider singleness an inferior status or an inferior condition in life. Indeed, the very opposite is taught in Scripture. Not the opposite as if it's superior. Although Paul does say, in many cases it is better to be single than to be married. To give undistracted loyalty and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some are called to singleness, sometimes for reasons known only to God, but often 
that singleness can provide opportunities for ministry, mission, service, and devotion to Christ that those who are married very often get distracted from. These are the primary truths of this text. Marriage is God's idea. Marriage is defined and designed. Marriage is for a man and a woman. Marriage is made to last. Marriage is not for everyone. If I were to ask, I'm not going to ask, if I were to ask for a show of hands, for all those in this room who at one point or another have committed some kind of sexual sin or some kind of sin that violated or marred or disfigured marriage, my guess is that every adult in the room would have to raise their hand and confess something, something, with the eye, with the heart, with the mind, with the hand. But here's the thing. We have a Savior who is our husband, who left his father. He left his father's favor. He left his father's house. He left his father's side to come here to hold fast to us in covenant love and faithfulness so that we might become one with Him. He is the ultimate husband. He is the the first and best and highest husband. All other husbands are copies and shadows. He's the real thing. And He has loved us so much that He gave His life for us. He died for us. He atoned for our sins. He said, I want you to be with me where I am in my Father's house forever and I will go to any length. I will pay any price to have you so that you, you who have committed these sins can know that they are washed clean, that you are redeemed, that you are washed that you are justified, that you belong to Jesus and will belong to Him forever and ever. And you will enjoy marriage as it's meant to be, not in some erotic way that some try to characterize all this about. No, it's a pure spiritual relationship with Jesus that we will enjoy forever and ever and ever and ever. So if you're slate is marred by all kinds of junk and sin. Just realize Jesus wiped the slate clean. And you were His. And His forever. So as we think about these things, we need to take them seriously. Because our God has spoken. But we can respond to them from a place of acceptance and approval and love For we are in Christ. Christ has set His heart upon us. And when Jesus sets His heart upon somebody, He never lets go. He never lets go. Let's pray. Oh, Father, um, write these things upon our hearts. That first and foremost, we will cherish Jesus the great husband of our souls, the lover of our souls. And then secondly, that we might more accurately and faithfully reflect His love in our marriages and in our families. Oh Lord, give us grace, for we need it desperately. And give us courage And give us love to respond to this world in its counter-message with humility, tenderness, and affection. Oh Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
do identify as transgender or LGBTQ plus as image bearers of God when they are being sinned against and mistreated while not affirming those choices? Yeah. Great question. Um, how do we show support for those who are choosing a different path, so to speak? Um, well, the, the simple answer is show it the way you show to any sinner. Show it the way you show it to yourself. You're made in the image of God and you're a sinner. You don't want to beat yourself up or smash down yourself or have others smash you down. We are all made in the image of God. The, I'm not saying these folks are the vilest people on earth, but if we could somehow or other find the vilest person on the face of the earth, that man or that woman is made in the image of God. And as such, is always worthy of respect. Always. We must speak to and about those who differ from us on these things with nothing but respect. Even when we disagree, we respect, we honor, we talk to them, we ask them about their life, we communicate with them like you would any other person on the planet. It's when we, and all too many Christians have done this, when we cop a self-righteous attitude, have the attitude, and if you've ever had this, be rebuked. When we have the attitude, I could never do that. That is just self-righteousness right down to the bone. If you don't think you could ever do that for any sin, you don't know your own heart yet. I am capable of any sin any human has ever committed. And the only thing that has kept me from those sins is the astonishing grace of God. Leave Tim Shorey to himself for 30 seconds without divine restraint and you will see ugliness and filth and corruption that will absolutely astonish you. Astonish you. Same is true for you. There but for the grace of God. And that's not that's that's toward anyone. Made in the image of God, they are equally they have equal dignity as image bearers of God. We have equal depravity as those who have broken the law of God. They just maybe have broken it in different places than we have. And we in different places than they have. I don't know if that's a That's, that's, that one requires careful nuance. Um, scriptures are clear that if a person goes on practicing sin without repentance, I mean, and, we're t and there's specific lists. You can read them in 1 Corinthians 6. You can read it in Galatians 5. Uh, I think there's a similar list in Ephesians 5. There are specific sins that are listed. And if a person willfully, deliberately, without repentance, goes on doing those things, no matter what they claim to believe, their actions disprove their claims. They will, in fact, not go to heaven. Those who do such things, Paul says, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But here's where we have to be careful we don't know what is going on in the hearts of people. And there are times when people are repenting and you don't see it. And you don't know it. Their hearts may be broken over a sin pattern in their life, but it's just got a grip on them. There, there's all kinds of hidden realities to keep us from judging harshly and self-righteously. Uh, but... 
the warning of Scripture for everyone here is this. If you know you're practicing sin, if you deliberately keep on practicing sin, if you refuse to repent of that sin, friend, you could say you're a Christian a thousand times a day, but you will not go to heaven. Because those who truly trust Christ and love Christ long to obey Christ. Because there's a change of the heart. Faith is not just here. Faith comes out of a heart that's been born again, that's been regenerated by the power of God. And that new heart produces new fruit, a new lifestyle. So a person who goes on living like they've always lived, though they now say they're Christians, but there's no change, that means there's no fruit, and that means probably there's no new heart. Those who have a new heart will have a new life. We who have been buried with Christ, Romans 6, have been raised to newness of life. If you're a Christian, here's, I think we'll have to stop, right? Are we out of time? Let me leave you with this. You may be looking at sin temptations in your life and saying, these are too strong for me. These are too powerful. I can't beat these. These these just going to take me down. Hear this. When you came to faith in Christ, you know why you came to faith in Christ? You came to faith in Christ because God, by His Holy Spirit, made you alive. He brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life. He gave you a new heart, a new power, a new life, a new ability, a new strength, so that you can say no to sin and yes to godliness. Take hope. Now, it may not happen like that. And and there may be certain temptations. And very, very often with some of the sin patterns that we've talked about here today, very often those temptations last for the rest of your life. But day by day, God gives you grace to overcome them. And when you do fall, get up and run back to the cross of Jesus. Because if we confess our sins, He is faithful. And he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is our Savior. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord, our Lord.